Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, author Roxane Gay is a force to be reckoned with in many genres. Fiction, essay writing, cultural criticism, tweeting, comic book writing, and a soon-to-be-published memoir. She read recently from some of her work and spoke with Seattle writer Ijeoma Aluo at this Seattle Arts and Lectures Women You Need to Know event at Town Hall Seattle on February 22nd. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Sal's Ruth Dickey introduces the event. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Good evening. My name is Ruth Dickey, and I have the tremendous pleasure of serving as the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and I am thrilled to welcome you to the second event in our series, Women You Need to Know, and to an evening with Roxanne Gay. <laughs> I know. I'd like to begin by thanking the many partners who have made tonight possible. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, the Seattle Times. Thanks to our series sponsor, Women's Funding Alliance, which advances leadership and economic opportunities for women and girls in Washington State. Let's have a round of applause for them. And thanks to our series presenting partner and the host of our delicious patron reception, Hedgebrook, which supports visionary women writers. I know. They support visionary women writers whose stories and ideas shape our culture now and for generations to come. Thanks to our organizational supporters, all of whom are listed in our program, and special thanks for significant support of our public programs to For Culture, the Amazon Literary Partnership, Arts Fund, Nordstrom, and the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture. We're grateful to our hotel sponsor, The Four Seasons Seattle, to tonight's bookstore partner, Third Place Books, and to Inform Interiors for loaning us these styly chairs. <laughs> and last but not nearly least, thanks to all of you for being here with us tonight. As I mentioned, tonight is part of a series that we're tremendously proud to have launched with our friends at Women's Funding Alliance in Hedgebrook to celebrate and elevate women's voices. In our current political moment, I am even more grateful for the work that Women's Funding Alliance and Hedgebrook do each and every day to nurture, amplify, and champion women's voices. To tell you a bit more about this series, I'm proud to welcome Women's Funding Alliance board member Ada Williams-Prince. Wow. Thank you, thank you. On behalf of Women's Funding Alliance and each of our partners, I, am, I would like to thank you for joining us this evening and to, for showing up for Women in the Arts. Um, I am, at, at, the, at the Women's Funding Alliance, our mission is to advance leadership and economic opportunity for women and girls in Washington State. In our work with women and girls serving organizations in service to our mission, we have come to appreciate the arts as a critical outlet for women and girls to express their diverse thoughts, experiences, and unique perspectives in the world. The Women You Need to Know series elevates women's voices and shapes the way we think and talk about important issues affecting women and girls. And tonight, we are excited to welcome an artist who has fundamentally changed our modern feminist discourse. I'm personally honored to be here um, for so many reasons. Uh, both of these women inspire me, particularly because now, 
they're totally my BFFs because I spent all of one minute with them. <laughs> and particularly Roxanne, um, she doesn't know this, but she's totally my BFF because growing up as a black girl in South Central Los Angeles who loved comic books and the Sweet Valley High School series, <laughs> she just totally gets me. So. I really, I, I want to be both of these women when I grow up, but I just want to say, again, on behalf of Women's Funding Alliance and our partners, thank you for joining us and being a part of this incredible series. Thanks so much, Ada. Wink will conclude in May with our final installment with a New Yorker television critic, Emily Nussbaum, and we'd love for all of you to be with us. The format for this evening will be remarks by Roxanne Gay, who will then be joined on stage for a lively conversation by Idioma Oluo, who is a correspondent. I know, let's have a round of applause. As it sounds like all of you already know, Ijoma is a correspondent for The Guardian. She was named one of the most influential people in Seattle by Seattle Magazine, and she's the editor-at-large for The Establishment, a media platform run and funded by women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ijoma will include as many questions from you all as possible, so if you have a question for Roxanne, please write it on a question card and pass it to an usher when prompted to do so. If you would like to tweet, Facebook, or otherwise post about tonight's event, we would be most grateful. Our hashtag for tonight is SalRox. To officially open our evening, I'm proud to introduce a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, Writers in the Schools will work at 27 area public schools and at Seattle Children's Hospital to match them with local, professional, creative writers and inspire over 5,000 students to write their own stories, poems, and memoirs. Yay! <laughs> yeah, Writers in the Schools! Tonight's reader, Jade Knight, will be sharing her poem, An Artist Instructed, which she wrote while working with WITS writer-in-residence, Janine Walker, at Nathan Hale High School. Please join me in welcoming Jade. An artist instructed. Make me strong. Make me powerful. Paint me if a society didn't tell my brown skin no. Put my curls wild and free, and please bright pink. Make three eyes, because two is not enough. Because the power of three is always better than one. Make me look like my roots, like I'm connected to the trees. Make my eyes green, yes, like trees. Put me with everything free. Paint me if my ancestors weren't pushed into slavery. Make my background orange, but if it was burnt by the sun with gold specks, so everyone can know my true worth. Put your name on my chest, so I know your heart was in this. I want my power, my strength, so everyone can know society didn't get to me.
Wasn't she amazing? Yeah, thanks, Jade. And now the moment we've been eagerly awaiting. I read Bad Feminist in the break between Christmas and New Year's at a time when I had space to take it with me to coffee shops and lunches and sofas, which felt like a traveling feast of conversations. Indeed, reading the collection feels like a series of conversations with an old, super smart, funny friend. Whether unpacking a love for Sweet Valley High, or exploring how our culture condones violence, or thoughtfully critiquing Juno Diaz or Sheryl Sandberg, Roxane Gay's writing is always thoughtful, incisive, and illuminating. I began putting sticky notes and flags into the book, pink ones, of course, and soon it was festooned in pink. It's a book full of things I want to mark and remember and contemplate and share. Roxanne's ability to passionately hold a love for pink, Vogue, and Scrabble at the same time she explores violence and shame awes me. It's the same ability that allows her to write in an essay about both the Oslo mass shootings and the death of Amy Winehouse. We are all stinking messes, every last one of us, or we once were messes and found our way out, or we're trying to find our way out of a mess, scratching, reaching. This is the kind of sentence that makes me want to stand up and yell, hallelujah. Roxanne's writings are filled with such sentences, holding simultaneously an unflinching view of that which is horrifying, and a breathtaking, abundant compassion for the unresolved, the complicated, the mess. She's the author of the celebrated novel An Untamed State and the essay collection Bad Feminist and the heartbreaking and luminous collection of short stories Dangerous Women, which I simply could not put down. Her writing has been widely featured, including Best American Short Stories, and she's the co-editor of Pank and the essay editor for The Rumpus. She's a professor in the MFA writing program at Purdue University, and if you don't follow her on Twitter, you are missing one of my favorite parts of the Twitter sphere. In one of my favorite essays, What We Hunger For, she writes, you think you are alone until you find books about girls like you. Salvation is certainly among the reasons I read. Reading and writing have always pulled me out of the darkest experiences of my life. Stories have given me a place in which to lose myself. They have allowed me to remember. They have allowed me to forget. They have allowed me to imagine different endings and better possible worlds. Roxanne's writing has given us all the gift of reflecting complicated stories of all sorts of women experiencing violence, loss, and love. Her writing challenges us, engages us, and respects us enough not to have easy answers. Please join me in welcoming the author of so many necessary stories in which we can see ourselves and our stinking messes and imagine our ways to different endings and better possible worlds. Roxanne Gay. Hello, Seattle. I'm gonna put on my Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation headphone <laughs> because we are all part of the Rhythm Nation. Uh, first of all, shout out to Jade. What's up?
That was absolutely incredible. I would have never had the ovaries to do that in high school. <laughs> I barely have the ovaries to do it now. But it's a real pleasure to be here in Seattle. I actually got here at 6.05, and there were a bunch of people in line. And when I walked in, I was like, what are they waiting for? <laughs> Y'all were at 90 minutes early. That is so extra. <laughs> Just congratulate yourselves. <laughs> it's pretty fucking awesome. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm going to read a couple stories from my new book, Difficult Women. and. Um, then I guess I'll share some thoughts about the election, and then uh, I'm going to have a conversation with Igioma. And we're going to take your questions. Uh, and so the first story I'm going to read is called Open Marriage. And oftentimes in interviewers, interviewers ask me, you know, what was the inspiration for this story? And they clearly want some profound answer, like, you know, it was about the meaning of life. I wrote this story because I was watching an Activia commercial. <laughs> with Jamie Lee Curtis, and I thought, oh my God, I want to be as happy as Jamie Lee Curtis. I want yogurt to make me this joyful. <laughs> so I actually went out and bought some Activia, because commercials work, and it's really disgusting. It's very thin and liquidy, so it's kind of like yogurty water. And it also does exactly what it promises. <laughs> anyway, the first time I read this story, a woman in the audience threw up. <laughs> so the bar has been set. <laughs> we are having a heated debate about whether or not yogurt can expire when my husband suggests that we stay together but see other people. He says open marriage intrigues him. He couldn't be happier, but he read this article online this one time. I tell him, look, yogurt cannot expire because it's filled with bacteria. I don't know if this is true, but I have seen commercials about yogurt that mention things like bacteria and the word probiotics, so I feel like I have a sufficient command of the topic. <laughs> I give him a look. I say, he's welcome to try and open his half of the marriage, but I'm going to keep mine closed. <sighs> Sorry. I say, he's welcome to try and find other women to sleep with, but I'm fine, and his face falls because he thinks I'm playing a trick on him. I'm not. He has no game, none at all. <laughs> if I hadn't taken matters in hand, we would still be sitting on his couch in his bachelor apartment, his arms snaking around my shoulders with every single yawn. I am not worried. He is the kind of man who gets ideas, but is largely unable to follow through with them. As we're talking, he shoves his hands into his jeans. This is something he does often, wearing right through the pockets of most of his pants. He leans against the kitchen counter. He says he wants cultivating an open marriage to be something we do together. I politely decline once more. I say, baby, I'm not inclined to open my half of the marriage, which only confuses him further because usually I'm quick-tempered and what he calls feisty, which only means I talk back and give him roadhead once in a while. <laughs> and I am the very first woman who has ever done that in his limited experience, and so it's still something of a novelty, something that requires terminology. I take a bite of the yogurt that started our scientific debate. It expired more than three months ago, but <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> but it still appears edible. When I dip my spoon into the plastic container, the yogurt gives way easily. It's sour. My husband's face is red and sweat beads on his upper lip. He asks if I would seriously be fine with him having no strings attached sex with another woman, and I say, yes, baby, of course. He tells me I'm amazing in bed, that it's not about being unsatisfied, and I say, yes, baby, of course. <laughs> I rock his world on the regular, and we both know it. He just, he can barely string three words together after we make love. He just lies there, trying to catch his breath, muttering, God damn, over and over. I say, good luck, and be safe, and don't you break my heart, baby. Don't you break my heart. His eyes widen. I eat the entire container of yogurt, even going so far as to scrape the sides until it is clean. I vocalize my appreciation for the expired yogurt and do a lot of elaborate spoon licking. I hold my husband's gaze the entire time. He was a virgin when we married. He looks away first. <laughs> Thank you. The next time your partner comes talking about, let's do an open marriage, and you're not in a polyamorous relationship, just go to the yogurt trick. <laughs> I hear it works. <laughs> so about 17 years ago, my parents moved to a gated community in Naples, Florida, and we're from the Midwest, and so we had never heard of gated communities, really. And in Florida, everybody lives in a gated community, including like people in shitty neighborhoods. <laughs> It's really quite adorable. It's like the gates are just keeping the shitty in. <laughs> but I was obsessed with their neighborhood, and so I wrote a series of vignettes called Florida. 3333 Palmetto Crest Circle. The adjustment had been uncomfortable. All her life, Marcy had lived in the Midwest with people who ate red meat and starchy foods who allowed their bodies to spread without shame. And then her husband was transferred to Naples. Marcy's mother said, Naples, like in Italy? And Marcy said, no, Florida. And her mother said, oh dear. <laughs> the women in Naples all looked the same, lean and darkly tan, their faces narrow with hunger discipline, whittled by the same surgeon. They stared at Marcy's relatively ample physique with disgust or envy or something between the two. At night, Marcy worried about her ass and thighs. Her, all, her husband always said, baby, you are perfect, and she flushed angrily. His assurances were so reflexive as to be insulting. In Omaha, they lived in a neighborhood. In Naples, they moved into a gated community, Palmetto Landing, where each estate was blandly unique and sprawling. Tall facades, lots of glass and balustrades around the windows, Spanish tiles on the roofs. The streets were even cobbled with tiny square bricks. The first time they drove up to the gatehouse, manned by a white-haired gentleman in polyester, Marcy leaned forward to study the landscaping, tall cypresses encircled by Peruvian lilies looming over the guardhouse. She sighed, said, this is a bit much. Her husband said, baby, people love illusion of safety and the spectacle of enclosure. They were given barcoded stickers for their cars. Their community had a country club. They joined because the transfer came with a promotion and a raise. 
Marcy's husband said it was important to live up to their new station. He mostly wanted to play golf with men whose bellies were fatter than his. In Palmetto Landing, the men's bodies expanded in inverse proportion to those of their wives. Each morning, there was a group fitness class at the clubhouse, spinning, Zumba, kickboxing, always something different. The instructor was a young, aggressively fit woman, Caridad. The other wives loved to say her name, trilling their R's to show Caridad, ellas hablan español. <laughs> Marcy stood in the back of the studio in sweatpants and an old t-shirt of her husband's while the women around her perspired in their perfectly coordinated outfits that cost more than Marcy's wardrobe. Marcy enjoyed the pleasant soreness as she drove the three blocks home after each class. <laughs> She liked how, for an hour, there was a precise set of instructions she was meant to follow, a clear sense of direction. The other wives were quietly fascinated by Marcy in that she was a rare species in the wealthy enclave, a first wife. <laughs> <coughs> Ellen Katz, who lived three doors down, often squeezed Marcy's shoulder with her cool, bony hand. She'd say, we're rooting for you, kid and offered words of encouragement as Marcy's figure slimmed. Marcy never knew what to say during these moments, but she smiled politely because she understood these people and how they existed only in relation to each other. 4411 Palmetto Pines Way. At first, news of the brothel was only a rumor. Men would rush into and out of the spa in Palmetto Landing at all hours, often looking harried on the way in and very relaxed on the way out. <laughs> but we had no proof. Then, Evelyn Marshall caught her husband getting a blowjob. She was getting a hot stone massage and heard a familiar groan from the adjacent room. <laughs> News spread quickly throughout our small community, but no one alerted the authorities we felt important having such goings-on in our midst. <laughs> in the afternoons, the therapists often sit on a large lanai behind the spa in negligees and peignoirs and heavy makeup, smoking and drinking bright-colored fruity drinks, waiting for their next clients. My front balcony looks out onto this lanai where the ladies lounge. They are not as beautiful as you might imagine, but they are interesting and they talk loudly. They never seem to sweat despite the humidity. Their voices are deep and velvety in the way of women who know things. I sit on my balcony most afternoons wearing a pair of dark sunglasses. I hold a book in my lap. I pretend to read. One of the women who works at the spa is very tall, the kind of tall in a woman that makes people stare. She has long, dark hair she always wears down. She is beautiful, and I love looking at her, how she moves, the anger in her eyes. She caught me staring once, stood, her robe falling open. She lifted a leg and propped it on the railing and pointed between her thighs, then threw her hands aggressively in the air. I did not stop staring. She did not close her legs. I went to see her. The woman at the desk studied me carefully. She said, Nadia is one of our special therapists. She charges high fees. I said, I know. The receptionist shrugged. Soon after, I was escorted into the back. I heard interesting sounds. Nadia had a thick Russian accent, but spoke English well. You want massage, candles, what, she asked. I said, I want to fuck. The words felt heavy and strange in my mouth. Nadia cocked her head to the side. You are different, she said. 
Later, her tongue was cool and soft between my thighs. I twisted my fingers in her hair, resting my heels on her back. I wanted to explain myself. As I was leaving, I ran into my next door neighbor. She pulled her... (laughs) (coughs) You guys are funny. (laughs) She pulled her purse closer to her body and looked away. I pressed my hand against my neighbor's shoulder as we passed. She still refused to look at me, but she leaned into my touch. Now, Nadia stares at me when she's on her lanai and I am up on my balcony. I don't look away. My husband calls me a wildcat. After we make love, he always whistles under his breath and slaps my thigh and says, God damn, woman, you are going to kill me. On our wedding day, my mother pulled me aside at the chapel. I was only half-dressed, walking around in white pantyhose, a corset, and white patent leather heels. My dress was a monstrosity of satin and chiffon, and I wanted to wear it for as little time as possible. We stood in a dark vestibule, and my mother began straightening my curls, pulling them from my face, messing with the pearl headband holding my hair back. She said, there is no mystery to keeping a man. She dabbed at my lipstick with a tissue she had been holding folded in the palm of her hand. She said, you do whatever sick thing he wants, anytime he wants, and you will never have a problem. That was the only advice my mother has ever given me. (laughs) She and my father divorced when I was nine. Thank you. I live in the middle of nowhere, so I write about sex and my UPS man, which is actually also about sex. Uh, Oh, he's so desirable. Mm. He has amazing calf muscles, and sometimes I see him in town, and in the spring and summer, he's wearing the brown shorts. Um, And I just, I look at him and I just whisper, what can brown do for you? (laughs) And the answer is, oh, you can do a lot. And when he pushes on the gas to move away, his calf muscles flex, and I'm just like, yes! I just, I want to be the pedal. I just, press me, baby. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Indiana, I'll tell you what. They make them strong. Uh, so, I've been thinking a lot lately about, (laughs) I'm totally switching gears now. (laughs) And now I'm gonna be like really fucking depressing. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But they were like, could you talk to us about something? And I was like, oh, that's super vague. But yeah, (laughs) I I actually totally can. Uh, But I've been thinking a lot about the current political climate and the responsibilities that we all have. And so I wrote this, I guess I call it a talk, um, called The Age of American Disgrace. I know. (laughs) (laughs) On Tuesday, November 8th, 2016, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Well, president. I spent the evening watching election returns, and with each passing hour, the hope of Hillary Clinton as our first woman president faded a little more. But I still held on to some hope because it was easier than facing reality. Although I do not think myself an idealist, I could not allow myself to believe Trump could be elected. 
I didn't even think he could garner the Republican nomination. For some foolish reason, I believed there were enough people across the country who believed in social progress and the greater good to overcome those who, for whatever reason, believed in Trump's harmful rhetoric. I was stunned in the wake of the election. I was ashamed of being so stunned and so unprepared to face this American reality. The morning after the election, my mother called and I ignored my phone because it was 8 a.m. and Haitian parents believe that if you're not up at six, you have wasted the entire day. <laughs> I knew she was calling also to check in on me. I knew she was worried because we had spoken throughout election night and I was taking it hard. A few minutes later, she texted, the sun is shining today and we are alive, still together and definitely stronger, wake up. My mother is the most incredible person I know. I didn't want to wake up, or I wished that this were a nightmare so I could wake up in the world that we lived in on November 7th. An imperfect world to be sure, but a world where an orange reality television star was not the president-elect. I did not want to wake up in a world where everything suddenly became precarious for far too many people. On Wednesday, I went about my day. I had to accept that the world was not coming to an end, even though it felt that way. There were media interviews, even though I had no idea what to say, no way of making sense of the incomprehensible. What do we do next, I was asked, and what I wanted to say was, I have no fucking idea, but I couldn't because you're not allowed to curse on the radio. <laughs> While I was running errands, the sun was indeed shining, the air was crisp, it was in all senses a perfect fall day. People were out living their lives. At my gym, everyone bantered as they usually do. The woman at the dry cleaner smiled and wished me a good day as she usually does, and I wished her a good day back as I usually do. Life went on, or at least it seemed that way. I kept wanting to scream, don't you know what's going on? And at the same time, because I live in a fairly small town in Indiana, I looked at each and every person and thought, you probably voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> How could you? Do you have any idea what you've done? I didn't write a lot about the presidential campaign last year, and I regret that now. I wanted to, but I didn't have the energy to deal with the backlash that always comes when a woman writes about another woman with any sort of gratitude. I didn't have the words to express my support of and admiration for Hillary Clinton or to express my frustration with the narrow field of candidates the Democrats offered or to express my horror that Donald Trump was consistently overcoming incredibly shallow expectations. Now, though, we can no longer relitigate the election. Instead, I'm interested in figuring out where do we go from here. I am interested in figuring out how we survive this age of American disgrace. And let us be clear, to call what is currently happening a disgrace is my way of being very polite. Less than a month into, well, now it's been more than a month, more than a month into his presidency, Trump has set into motion an executive order to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. He has tried to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. He has lied repeatedly. He has spent the past three weekends at his Florida estate where he discusses <clears throat> matters of national and international security with no regard for actual security. He has tried to ban Muslims from entering the country, including green card holders. He has ordered ice waves on undocumented immigrants, specifically targeting sanctuary cities, and had his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, resign because he discussed sanctions with the Russian ambassador and then lied to Mike Pence. 
Flynn, if you missed it, led a vigorous chant of lock her up during the presidential campaign because, you know, Hillary Clinton, and she wrote some emails that one time. <laughs> Throughout the campaign, I thought about language quite a lot and how careless we got with the words we used. I thought and am thinking about language because I am a writer, and words are how I make sense of the world. They're how I make sense of myself. All last year, there were all kinds of pithy catchphrases that became popular. Michelle Obama said, they go low, we go high. And for a woman in her position, that kind of made sense. She was beholden to the role of first lady and she was right in her belief that sometimes there is no need to sink lower than your opponent. But millions of people went on to parrot these words with no genuine understanding of the world and how it works. Too many people were and are invested in this idea of ideological purity and infallibility to realize that there is no purity in fighting fascism. There is no high road with a man who appointed a white supremacist as one of his chief advisors. When they go low, we have to be willing to go way lower if we have any hope or chance of resisting their... We have to be willing to go way lower if we have any hope or chance of resisting their greedy, shallow, insular brand of fascism. The phrase, love trumps hate, was equally loathsome because that is in fact rarely the case. And in saying that over and over, people were literally centering Donald Trump. Love trumps hate. Language matters and sometimes it becomes an empty container for whatever bullshit people wanna fill it with. Go high, Trump hate, be nasty, wear a pantsuit. The election results proved that love does not Trump hate, not at all. As catchy as it sounds, I am not a nasty woman because there is no reclamation in how Trump sees women. And while pantsuits are a charming and fashionable rallying outfit, they will not get us to a promised land. To be clear, I don't begrudge people who found comfort or solidarity in these words and ideas, but God damn, we needed to do better then and we need to do better now. We need to, Woo! oh, I like you guys, I'm never leaving. That's what's up. <laughs> We need to get uncomfortable, and that means moving beyond tidy words that make us feel like the world is a better and more unified place than it actually is. Those of us in the crosshairs of a Trump presidency are devastated, but we have to keep our eyes wide open, especially as the good white folk who voted for Clinton keep centering their whiteness every chance they get. They are ashamed of their country and they keep voicing their shame. But look, I don't want your shame. I want your fight. I want to hear your voices. Since the election, I have watched as pundits try to understand voters in these so-called flyover states where, by the way, I have lived for most of my life and where I still live now. People in these states are not mysteries. We live our lives much the same way that supposed coastal elites do. We work and play and we live and love. And though journalists and coastal people need a far stronger, more nuanced understanding of what it's like to live in these more conservative places, people in red states could also stand to understand the culture of more liberal places. 
Not enough people with visible platforms are facing the ugly truth of what happened in this election. The majority of white men and white women voted for Trump. Some feminists are shocked as shit that white women would value their whiteness over their womanhood, but women of color and people of color are not surprised. The precedent for this can be traced back to slavery. What we are seeing is American racism, xenophobia, and misogyny on full display. Trump voters can deny reality all they want, but with their vote, they consented to everything Trump stands for, and they now have to live with the discomfort of facing themselves for who they really are. What is reaped must now be sown. I have also been thinking about the, pit, the phrase identity politics, which is always used to dismiss the concerns and lived experiences of marginalized people and to derail conversations about how identity affects the way we move through the world. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love babies. So I'm going to hold that baby after the event. I, I'm serious about holding the baby. <laughs> Identity politics is an accusation that implies that we can somehow separate ourselves from the things that define us. And it implies that we can't both acknowledge and embrace our identities and be part of a broader community. We are going to hear that phrase a lot in the coming years as marginalized people vocalize why a Trump presidency is so terrifying. And those who don't get it will try to look the other way or absolve themselves of how they are complicit in everything that comes next. I am a black bisexual woman. I am Haitian American. I am Libra, which matters more than anything. <laughs> October. I grew up middle class and then upper middle class. I am fat. I am a very lapsed Catholic. My identity is political because so much of who I am is part of the public discourse, subject to legislation, subject to discrimination and disadvantage. Clearly, this is not the entirety of my life and who I am. Don't get me wrong, I've got it pretty good. In fact, the work I do isn't for me, not really. It's for the people who don't have the privilege I do, who need someone to stand and speak and fight for them. This is how I use my freedom to speak. This is how I create safe spaces. February is Black History Month. And February, and frankly every month of the year, I am invited to events with a vague mandate to speak on diversity. And that word becomes another empty container that people fill with literally whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> Basically, I'm invited to talk to and teach white people about things that are largely pretty easy to figure out. <laughs> I, like many people of color, am asked for solutions to problems I had no hand in creating. I will be honest, I am so very tired of talking about diversity. I am so tired of the assumption that as a black woman, I somehow have access to some magical Negro wisdom about how to make the world a better and more inclusive place. I do not. The word diversity has as of late become so overused as to become meaningless. In a 2015 article for the New York Times Magazine, Anna Holmes wrote about the, dilu about the dilution of the word, attributing its loss of meaning to a combination of overuse, imprecision, inertia, and self-serving intentions. The word diversity is, in its most imprecise uses, a placeholder for issues of inclusion, retention, recruitment, and representation in all realms. 
Diversity is a problem seemingly without solutions. We talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and nothing much ever seems to change. This is another way in which we are careless with language and in which way we, in which we must stop being so careless with language. Uh, too many people act as if by simply saying the word diversity we're somehow doing something or creating change. That's not how it works. Change requires intent and effort and material support, which in most cases is robust and long-term financial commitment. And always change requires a little or a lot of imagination, a willingness to think differently, react differently, and act differently. I've also been thinking about allies. I am done with allyship, particularly when the term ally is used as a noun rather than a verb. I am done with... I am done with people allowing themselves the comfortable distance provided by allyship. I can't allow myself that comfortable distance. We can't afford it anymore. The challenges vulnerable people are going to be facing from this point forward have to be taken on by all of us as personal. We have to fight for and with each other. Since November, people have asked me day after day what we do next. I have no idea, but I'm actively working on finding answers to that question. I know we have to fight, even if we don't know what that fight looks like. I know that we need sanctuary. I know that we need to raise our voices and keep them raised. I still need time to hurt and rage, but I also recognize that we can't do nothing while we hurt and rage. I'm thinking about the ways in which we, everyday citizens, can participate in our local elections this year the midterm elections next year, and certainly the 2020 presidential election. I'm thinking about ways in which we can prioritize social justice and economic justice. I'm thinking about how we can keep protesting and not get protest fatigue, a phrase that I've seen that is the most baffling collection of words ever. <laughs> we need to run for office and be disciplined and well-organized. We need money. We need to protect ourselves and each other. When we use our words, we have to do so with care and intent. I have to believe that we are going to get through this and we will not only survive, but thrive. It is a fragile hope, but despite everything, I need a little hope to hold on to. I think we all do. I need to be able to breathe. I need to believe there is grace beyond this disgrace. Thank you. this on? Yes. Yeah, Hello. How are you? I'm better now. Good. I'm better now. I think I want to just start by saying, you know, as a woman of color and a writer of color, you do a lot of events. I do. Oftentimes, I feel they are more extractive than anything else, and it is nice as a black woman to sit and watch another black woman in an event <laughs> and feel like I'm coming home with something. <laughs> Good. So, Yay. thank you. Well, 
I guess, you know, what I really wanted to talk about, you know, I've been reading Difficult Women. Mm-hmm. And it is a wonderful, hard, honest, breathtaking, magical book. And yes. I'm, not, I'm not, like, <laughs> bullshitting, it's true. <laughs> One thing, you know, that struck me, it was interesting, because I was reading a lot of the reviews of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people focused a lot on you know, the prevalence of things like assault and mm-hmm. violence, which to me doesn't shock me. Um, it should, but you know, I'm a woman yeah. in America. But what shocked me, I think in a way, what made it difficult for me to sit in one sitting and just keep reading was the accuracy with which you portrayed a sense of claustrophobia mm-hmm. that women have in society and how little of time and body and presence is ever a woman's own. And I was wondering kind of if, first off, if that was intentional um, and, and just kind of, you know, why, how that ended up being kind of a running theme through your work. Yeah, it was definitely intentional. In my fiction, in a lot of my fiction, you'll notice that it's very claustrophobic because I think that life can be very claustrophobic. You can feel crowded no matter where you are, crowded for a lot of different reasons, whether emotional or physical. And in a lot of these stories, the women have endured something very challenging. And uh, they're overwhelmed by the realities of their experiences. And when you are that overwhelmed, it's hard to breathe. It's hard to feel like you can stretch out. And I also think that in general, women are not really encouraged to take up space. We're encouraged to make ourselves small and to disappear. And I think that's another thing that contributes to this sense of claustrophobia, of wanting to take up space in the world, but not really being allowed to take up space. That's wonderful. Um, One thing I noticed, you seem to kind of balance the line, and and it was interesting to read this book, knowing that most of these stories were actually written before Bad Feminist Mm -hmm. came out. Um, Because I I remember distinctly you talking about the concept of difficult women in Bad Feminist. Mm -hmm. And I guess what was interesting to me was seeing you balance the line between not offering up explanation and apology for how women are who they are, but also not allowing people to assume that these women were in any way simplistic. How, you know, how did you decide, did you think of an entire backstory for some of these characters where there's very little explained as to how they became who they are, Mm -hmm. or is it something that you yourself haven't been able to figure out yet? Oh, I generally know the backstory of all my characters. I know everything about them. (laughs) Because I'm super nosy. Um, Actually, back in the green room, I asked Ijeoma literally 100 super personal questions. Just because I was curious, because I follow her on Twitter. So I was like, I need to know everything else that you don't put on the internet. Just spill the tea, girl. Let's go. Um, And I'm that way with my characters. And I pretend that I'm my character as I'm writing a story. And so... I might seem like I'm in the classroom in Lafayette, but no, I'm actually in New York City walking down the street, stop fucking talking to me. And 
So by the time I get to a story, I know how they're going to move through the story and how they're going to respond to various things that are happening in the story. Uh, and I oftentimes feel like women in fiction, their pathologies are explained. A happened and B happened, and that's why she's C. And I don't feel the need to draw that out. She is who she is, and you don't need to know her entire life story. All too often, women are expected to offer up every last thing about themselves. Um, we're forced to like sort of cannibalize our lives uh, to explain ourselves. And so I, with many of the women in my stories, I don't want to do that. That's wonderful. In fact, what I, what I had written down, what struck me is it seemed almost like a demand for their right to privacy, even mm -hmm. though these are fictional characters. What, what kind of delved behind that as far as, I would say, I know socially why you know, there would be a pull for wanting women to be able to have their own private space. Mm -hmm. But I, I would guess in literature, what kind of have you, has been missing from that that you were trying to kind of meet? Well, I do think in literature too, women are often lacking privacy. And, you know, literary women are torn apart and overanalyzed. And that's why we have the phrase likable women and for fiction like they're not here to be your fucking friend uh, you do not have to go have tea with miss crumpet it's going to be fine and so i'm just always interested in disrupting that um disrupting sort of what we expect from women whether in life or on the fictional page uh, you know i just i just want to do things differently because the great thing about fiction the most seductive thing about fiction is that you get to remake the world as you prefer it to be. And uh, I don't write utopias by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but I do try to reshape the world in certain ways in my fiction. That's exciting. You know, I was wondering, most of these works that you're, most of the work that's out now was written pre-2013-14. How is your writing looking now? I know that right now, for a lot of writers, especially women of color, what's happening in the world is placing unusual amounts of pressure mm -hmm. on work. Is this changing the work that you're doing now? Is it putting weird pressures on your work? There is a lot of pressure because people expect you to write very singularly about identity or race or gender. And that's actually not where my interests are right now. My next nonfiction project um, after Hunger is a book called, well, tentatively, Remote Control. Or, no, sorry, Jesus, it's called TV Guide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad. And <clears throat> each chapter is named after a television network. So um, HBO, uh, HDTV, Lifetime, Bravo. And I'm writing an essay of cultural criticism around like the television shows on that channel. And so that's kind of what I'm super into. Because I love, like, for example, HDTV. I watch it all the time. And the Property Brothers tweet at me all the time. And it's so great. Drew and Jonathan want a little chocolate. And they might get served. They might get served. So I, uh, you know, I, I have to resist what people expect me to write. Like, you know, I get a lot of emails or queries on Twitter. Can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? And my current response is, I'm not a vending machine. <laughs> <clears throat> At the same time, I also want to use my platform responsibly. And I do recognize that people, for whatever reason, look to me for 
my perspective. And so I do keep that in mind. Uh, and I, I, just, I just try to balance what I'm currently interested in and what's being expected of me. That's exciting. I know I, I think I recently wrote an essay like, I would really love to be able to write fiction. So if y'all could just get this yeah. shit sorted I, out. I mean, fiction is my first like, love. <laughs> and I, it's like, if we could just get Hillary in office, I could, <laughs> actually, you know, the thing is, I would actually be writing a lot more about, about politics if Hillary was in office because she's problematic. Mm -hmm. And, um, but in a way that interests me and in a way that we can fix mm -hmm. and deal with, like we can work with her. <laughs> and <laughs> so as a writer, I'm actually really sad that I didn't have that opportunity just to engage, I think, I think she's fixable, she really is. She moved left during the campaign and I do think she's a consummate politician, but that's fine. I mean, she knows where the bodies are buried and you need a shark in the White House, but yeah. Right now we, we don't have a shark, we have a bow, like a buoy. It's just like. <laughs> it's... My opinions have opinions. No, and I have a five-year-old niece and she's exactly like me. It's so great, it's so great. They do um, like math at 1.30 at her school and she doesn't want to do math at 1.30. <laughs> Which is like, girl, you're five. <laughs> this is not like multiple choice, but I also, I'm so proud of her. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a very opinionated nine-year-old who obsessed over this election and mm -hmm. You know, you, you talk about like looking around your neighborhood and being mm -hmm. like, oh, you people. M my son has a very visible target in our neighbor across the street who had all his signs up uh. and had also complained about my son's own personal Black Lives Matter sign that he mm -hmm. had. And so every day I catch my son looking out the window because we have these big picture windows and he just stares. <laughs> and he's like, you. Sometimes you gotta stare him down like, motherfucker, what? Exactly. <laughs> Oh yeah, every time I see a Trump bumper sticker in my town, which is every car, I, I get real excited and I go a little faster because I have a better car. I do, I, I bought a new car last May. It's the first time I treated myself and I must say I have a little vanity in my soul about it. Um, so what I'm gonna do here is I'm going to take a second here and if, if everyone has turned in their questions, um, I'm going to find a good some one. cool ones okay. for you. I'm going to try to do right by you here. Um, I trust that every single question there is excellent. You know, Seattle's good. Yeah. Seattle's pretty good. This is a Seattle's good audience. Good. Seattle's, Seattle's so kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I love you guys. You're great. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, okay, sorry, as an aside, the airport bathrooms are really, really dirty, and I just want to say it. I just want to say it. That's, you know, that's a really weird thing about SeaTac, right? Like, it seems like they upgraded everything. Yeah, but the but fucking filth. Just filth. Yeah. I just walked in, and I had to go so badly, so I was like, yeah. all right, thighs, don't fail me now. The girls are strong. Yeah. And so, 
they held me up, but I was very upset. Yeah, Sorry. The, the, I the, just had to get it right. off my chest. It's true. The stalls are nasty. They're tiny, so you're yes. touching everything. Yes, and I'm like, it's germs, really germs. Yeah. Oh. yeah. They're like, don't leave your bag unattended. I'm like, my bag is touching every radioactive yeah. germ in this thing. Shit. Yeah. Don't leave my vag unattended. This is yeah. horrible. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. All right. Here's a okay. question here. Yes. We're just going to jump from Vag to Twitter. <laughs> if you want to attend to it, let yeah. me know. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy following you on Twitter and having access to your reactions to everything from People Magazine articles to The Bachelor. <laughs> but I imagine you face a lot of backlash from trolls. What value do you see in Twitter? <laughs> this is a big question. <laughs> And does your activity relate to your writing? If so, how? Okay. Uh, you know, Twitter is really great because I'm shy. And no, I really am. <laughs> I'm very shy. And so, it, oh, scared the shit out of me. <laughs> um, it's like you're at a cocktail party, but you're in your PJs. And I really love that about Twitter. And. <laughs> I also love this idea that you can connect to people you like and admire, and it's just fun. But increasingly, it's very toxic, and it's hard. I don't know. I used to say I would never leave Twitter, but there are days, I, like, I just took a week off, and it was great, because I wasn't upset, and I wasn't being called ugly and fat. And that was really relaxing. <laughs> and I realized, oh, this is normal. Okay, okay. And so, you know, it's challenging. But in terms of writing, you know, a lot of people are like, you spend all day on Twitter. And I'm like, how long do you people spend on Twitter? It's like a half hour a day. I just peek in and then I pop back out. But I oftentimes use it as like a sandbox in terms of my writing where I might kick around an idea and then it starts to form, and then I go and actually write an essay. So it's really good for my nonfiction. Um, there's always so much going on, and uh, the one thing I love most about Twitter, honestly, is that it's how I find out about everything. Every major news event in the past seven years I have learned about on Twitter, um, and to varying degrees of accuracy. <laughs> but <laughs> eventually Twitter gets it right, but they're always first, period. Like, I remember it was quite, it was so horrifying, but when um, the Pulse nightclub happened last year, I found out on Twitter, and I was actually glad to be online because it was so horrifying, the scope and the magnitude of what happened, that it was comforting in a sense to all be witnessing from a distance what was unfolding as a, a national tragedy and um, to not sort of have to deal with that alone because as a queer person I have spent much time in gay clubs and especially when I was younger it could be anyone it could be any one of us and it, just the racial aspect of it and the homophobia of it it was just also horrifying and so I also like the sense of community that rises out of Twitter at its best it's the sense of community both during bad times and good Nice. I, you know what I find? I find personally, I, I was, I'm always curious to find out if other writers feel the same way. I feel like Twitter has made me a much more concise writer oh, yeah. in my essays. Like, mm -hmm. you get really fired up and you, you get academic, right? Mm -hmm. You go to college, you have these loans, you're like, I need to use them, I'm going to put them in this <laughs> essay. 
but then you're trying to try something out on Twitter, and you're like, shit, no, can't say that. Okay, well, you know, the fundamental issues, no, that doesn't fit. And then you're just like, fuck these dudes. And you put it out, <laughs> and you get like thousands. Does, has, has it made, do you find this, that it has helped you kind of crystallize in points and phrases? I think it has made me a more elegant thinker, absolutely, because you have to cut to the chase. And I know that you can do Twitter threads, which are, I'm fine with, and I'll do them once in a while. But in general, like, just what do you need to say? Distill it in 140 characters. Which is not to say that I think that there's a time and place for expansion, and I'm a big fan of it. But um, I, I do like how it forces you to distill uh, if you're good at Twitter, and I am. <laughs> so your trolls on Twitter, I have a question about this, because you're kind of, you occupy a unique space, right, mm -hmm. of being a black woman who writes on various topics, but is also very, know, very well known for works on feminism. Do you find that your trolls primarily come from that section? And I ask simply because I have a very different relationship with Twitter mm -hmm. that a lot of my friends who write primarily about feminism do. I don't, I write primarily about race. Mm -hmm. And what I have found, honestly, is Facebook is the shitstorm for me because most of the people who have the really, like, backwards views on race, like they haven't figured out how Twitter works yet. They're still on dial. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll get someone who will like, you know, start up a no picture Facebook account to send me its seven paragraphs about race, but mm -hmm. it's completely different than the rapid fire, you know, thousands of 22 year old white dudes who are super mad that like a fat woman has words mm -hmm. on the internet. Do you, do you see that? Do you see less about race and more about feminism? Or do you see a... a oh, I just see a range. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's everything. Um, I, it does not matter what I write about, someone takes a fucking issue with it. It's really sad in a lot of ways. Like I could write about, oh, I love oatmeal. And someone will be like, you're oppressing oats. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, yes, but they were delicious. Um, and so it's, it's gender issues, it's race issues, sexuality issues. My last name is Gay, which is my last name. I was born this way. And a lot of people are like, ha ha, you're gay. And I'm like, ha, you're right. <laughs> Get it. Yeah, so it's... Oh, man, it's just so aggravating. Because in high school, I went to boarding school. And so my freshman year, someone, my name was on my door, and I don't have a middle name. And so someone wrote is between my... <laughs> it's kind of really funny now. Um, but I was just like, ha, ha, ha. And so I get, a, I get a weird amount of that. And I also get a lot of dick pictures because people think my account is a, a gay male account. And I'm like, no, it's just my name. Um, and also, they're not good dick pics. No. Uh, the quality is very, very bad. No. You would think people would try to actually impress I know, them. like, aim higher. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another question here. Can you talk a bit about the responsibility of being a writer at a time when freedom of speech is such a hot issue. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I first want everyone to go and reread the Constitution. <laughs> and just make sure that you understand what the freedom of speech actually is. 
Uh, it's so important because so many people think that the freedom of speech is the freedom from consequences for what you say. You are free from the consequence of being imprisoned, and that's important. And I actually really believe in the freedom of speech. But, and you can make all the stupid jokes you want, and you can say the most inflammatory things, but you're not doing that in a vacuum. And so I think the responsibility of writers is to take this awesome power that we have in this country, because we don't have it in every country, I assure you, um, and use it well. Just use it better. Oftentimes I see people who are like, freedom of speech, and they you know, use a bunch of racial slurs, and I'm like, that's the best you could come up with, <laughs> with the most incredible freedom? Uh, do better. And I, so I think we just have a responsibility to just do better with our language and our, our word choices. And it's not about not offending people. Offend all you want, be inflammatory, be provocative, but just do it well. And a lot of the people who are considered provocateurs these days just aren't good at it. And that makes me even more sad than anything else. Definitely. You know, it's interesting I found too, is of course online you'll hear a lot of, you've, you've violated my freedom of speech. Yes. Like um, you're, you're talking to me right now. Yeah. <laughs> just FYI. Uh, this weekend I was accused of issuing a fatwa. Oh. Yes, which was a first. I didn't know me. that you could do that. I, I, could you do one for me? I, you know what? <laughs> what, yeah. what, what, what? What law should we? I'm going to pass fatwas on something here. Um, um, I don't know. Men? Yeah. No men. <laughs> yeah. Fatwa well, issued. Last night I did an event in San Francisco, and um, the, it, was a, it was at a theater, and it was very, very old, and so the men's bathroom was outside, and on the wall it says, men outside. And <laughs> I took a picture, and I'm so happy. It's like my favorite picture. I've been looking at it all day. Just like... <laughs> on the plane, I was like, yes. Look at it. And it was just a really good picture. <laughs> um, by the way, this, I have gone through at least three questions right now asking you to run for office. No. <laughs> I, I, I had a feeling that would be the answer. You know, I don't have the temperament for public office. <laughs> I just, I don't. I think it's a really great idea for many people. I, I have way too much of a checkered past, honestly. It would just, I would never pass the, well. <laughs> actually, actually, I guess I could give it a go. <laughs> Apparently, like, whatever the fuck yeah. works now. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, if I was going to run for office, I think I would run for a school board. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I mean, everything about running for office that I think a writer would be really bad at is Pretty now much. thrown out the window. It really is. Right? Because it used to be meetings, organization, yeah. people. Planning. Yeah, all of that. You don't have to do Forethought. any of that anymore. No, you can just, like, show up. <laughs> yeah. My favorite part of, like, the past three months as horrifying as it has been, was that Trump and company did not know they had to staff the White House. <laughs> you know, every time I'm feeling a little sad, I just, I remember that little joyful detail, and I just also want to give them a Netflix subscription <laughs> so that they can watch um, The West Wing. <laughs> That's very well, it's very well covered in The West Wing. Uh, yeah. 
And especially during the final season when Jimmy Smith was running for president <laughs> and they were like making all the choices about who would run, I would have served with Jed Bartlett. Yeah. I would be on his staff in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, watching Barack Obama have to like tutor yeah. Trump through. I was like, that is the saddest, most classic tale of a black man in America. I mean. Like, <laughs> and the look on his face was just like so sad. I like, know. I'm doing the right thing, but how on earth do you go from a brilliant, beautiful black man like me to, to yeah. that? It, it's, oh. Yeah. It's, oh, oh it's, oh. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Right. Here's a question about your, um, your upcoming screenplay. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It says, can you talk a bit about your collaboration with Gina Prince-Blythewood on the script for An Untamed State? Do you find screenwriting or the collaboration challenging? Okay, <laughs> that's a great question. So uh, my novel, An Untamed State, was optioned by Fox Searchlight, and yeah, it's great. Um, I'm, I mean, it's a dream because... I love movies, and so when that happened, and it happened two years after the novel was published, so I had thought that it was not going to be optioned, and then out of nowhere, this woman named Mindy Schulteis emailed me, uh, and she produced Reba, uh, right? It's like so random, but she and her, <laughs> she and her producing partner, Michael Hanel, they made just a ton of money and they wanted to do something with it. And she had, her daughter is a fan of mine and she had read An Untamed State and she was like, I, I wanna make this into a TV show. And so that was actually our first thought. And then she just gave me a list of directors and said, who do you wanna work with? And I said, Gina Prince-Bythewood. That was my first choice because she directed Love and Basketball, which is one of my favorite movies. Yes, she just writes black love and films black love so beautifully. And I knew that she would handle my main character, Mireille, really well. And so I wrote the first draft of the screenplay, and I wrote it in December, and it was really fun and very different. But because I had written the novel, I don't know that it, I don't really know what it's like to write an original screenplay yet. Uh, but I had a really good time. Uh, and before that, Gina and I sat down and we talked for about three hours about which parts of the novel we were going to include in the movie because you can't include all of it. The collaboration has been really good because I'm trying to stay in my lane. I don't know how to direct a movie. And so she is the director. And once we're done with the screenplay, I'm going to let her do her job. And so the collaboration is really good because I'm, she's, we're both alpha but she's a bigger alpha than me. <laughs> and I really respect her, and I respect her craft, and I know that I'm gonna learn a lot from her, and I just wanna like, be able to go and like, watch her work. And I, so I've had to divorce myself. Plus I have other projects where I have complete control. Uh, so it's been wonderful, and she's very generous and kind, and I'm, I'm actually, I mean all of that. She is just wonderful. That's awesome. Actually, and that reminded me of something I was going to ask. You had, you had talked in, in Bad Feminist about the responsibility that writers have when they step outside of themselves, especially coming from a place of privilege and writing about other life experiences. How, there are a lot of different perspectives in difficult women. How did you approach these different identities and experience to be mindful of what you had written before? You know, I don't, I don't know. I just, it was just instinct. 
honestly, because these stories were written over probably a four or five year period. And so it wasn't conceived of as a collection. The stories were each written individually. And so I just focused on doing the best I could with each story at the time I was writing it. And um, when I went back through and edited it in the collection form, I just tried to make sure that I was being consistent and uh, that I was creating nuanced characters. And I think for the most part, I, I, I did. Uh, you know, I think the, this reviewer said the men were brutish and caricatures, and I was like, fuck you, they were not. <laughs> <laughs> that was from The Guardian. <laughs> I sure do read reviews. Uh, I understood what she was getting at, though, and, you know, I think that I'm a very different writer now than I was when I wrote these stories, and I keep that in mind, because, you know, men contain multitudes as well. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, you can... <laughs> I guess. I see you. <laughs> I mean, you could really just go read a Jonathan Franzen novel and hear the multitudes about birds for like a thousand yes. words. So. That's true. Um, this is a really interesting one. What are your strategies for handling self-doubt and to have the courage to share, publish, and speak up about your lived experience and your life as a feminist? Well, you know, imposter syndrome is real. And so I struggle with self-doubt quite a lot. Um, I would just think, who am I? Like, I'm just a random girl from Nebraska. Shut up. <laughs> and so I have to fight myself on that every day. Uh, but at the same time, I think when you work really hard for so long and you see the fruits of that labor, you start to have confidence. And so I also look every day at how hard I work. I'm relentless, I never quit. And um, I'm proud of that, I'm proud of my work ethic, which I get from my parents. And I just feel like I've earned this. This was not given to me and I continue to earn it and I never take it for granted. And so that's how I push the self-doubt away. But there isn't a day that goes by when I don't feel a moment of doubt or like why would people come and sit in a room and listen to me randomly talk uh, it's like, oh, stop, cut it off. <laughs> um, and so it's challenging. In terms of how I put myself out there, I tell myself that no one's going to read my work. That's literally what I do. And it was easier <laughs> five years ago. Um, now it's a, the, the delusion is falling apart <laughs> and crumbling, really. Uh, but I just tell myself no one's going to read it. And I also have very firm boundaries. There are things I simply do not write about uh, out of respect for the people in my life who I very much love and want to keep in my life. <laughs> do you find like that weird dichotomy? Because I, I know I find it when I write more personal essays where people think they know everything about mm -hmm. you and they don't realize that oftentimes you're writing about things that you have definitely sat down with yourself and decided yeah. you're comfortable with making uh, public. Do you find that a lot of people feel like they know all there is to know about Roxanne Gay because you've written a couple of things about issues that are pretty sensitive? I find that a lot. It's actually one of the hardest things about touring Bad Feminist, and I've been touring it now for three years, uh, which is remarkably two and a half years, and that's a long time. So I'm actually really glad to have new projects to talk about because I have nothing more to say about Bad Feminist. <laughs> like, literally go read the 500 interviews. It's, it, there's nothing more to say. But people do feel like they know me. And 
I don't want to ever be disrespectful of that, but you don't know me. You know what I allow you to know about me. Um, so you know part of me, you do, but it's not the whole of me. And so oftentimes, like, one of the key things I get asked a lot that drives me fucking batshit is, can I hug you? And male writers never get asked that, ever. And I don't like to hug people <laughs> unless I'm having sex with them. Um, and even then. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I do, I, do, I do like to hug my loved one very much, but I don't like to hug strangers. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to be touched. I never have. I mean, I've always been this way. Like, even when I was five, I wouldn't, like, let relatives kiss me. I would swerve like a motherfucker. I'd just be like, <laughs> no, sir. And so it's challenging when people feel like they know me and they want to get this sort of, it's not emotional labor, but this physical contact and they get really upset when I say no, then they take it personally, but it's not personal. It's, it's just, I'm, it's a boundary, and we're strangers. Like, you don't know me. I don't know you, for sure. And so I'm like, I can do a handshake, which I'm ha I love shaking hands. Shaking hands, I think, is a, a prop, an appropriate way to greet a stranger. <laughs> so it's a struggle, but, you know, I'm getting better. I used to just take the hug, but in the past two and a half years, I've just been like, no, no, I don't know you. Sorry. It's fresh. I think it's important. I think that we should all, I mean, even for our kids, we do this to our kids, right? Mm -hmm. We force our kids to hug people that they don't want to. Yes. And especially for women mm -hmm. and for women of color, there is a, a great expectation on, on their bodies. Yes. And one, I think, you know. Yeah, one of my favorite things that my sister-in-law has done with my niece is when Parker doesn't want a kiss or a hug from a family member, she's like, okay. And she, she has really taught Parker about bodily autonomy, even in, in age-appropriate ways, of course. But it's so important. And, you know, little kids have really good instincts. If they don't want to hug someone, there's a reason. And we may never know that reason, but I trust children to tell me how they want me to behave with them. Except for the baby I'm going to hold later. <laughs> That, I mean, sorry, little baby, you don't, you don't get, your mom gets a choice, but you don't. Um, by the way, speaking of people acting like they know you, I, I don't date anymore. I went on two dates where people brought up my essays, like on oh. the first date, like oh. personal stuff. Mm. And they'd be like, so just so you know, in my childhood, and I'm like, nope. Yeah, just pull that shade down, yep. like the post office is closed. <laughs> yeah. No, I, the best thing to do is to go back into your past to find a dating option, because it's hard to date new people. Yeah? Yeah. All right. I'm going to just start cold calling anyone. <laughs> I mean, it's a small town. You're probably in this audience, if you hear from me. Uh, hey, stranger. <laughs> yeah, you know why. Roxanne sent me. That'll go over well. <laughs> It, I think it would help. I, I think it would help. It might. Well, you know, it really might. I, I think. Depending on the dude or lady. It's Seattle. Seattle, that's true. It would that's go well. True. It, could go. it could be anything. Let's it's try it. Exactly. I'm going to start using that. You know, look, Roxanne told me, go through my phone. Yeah. Find some people. Yeah. What are you doing tomorrow? Yes. Okay. Let what? me know how it goes. I, okay. I, I'll tweet it. Oh, yes. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
what is it like to write The World of Wakanda? Oh, The World of Wakanda is thrilling. Um, it's come to an end, which is sad, but it was wonderful. It was such a, an unexpected project because I'm not from the world of comics. And my friend Tanahasi emailed me and he was like, hey, do you want to write a comic for Marvel? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I was just like, this motherfucker is on some shit right now. And then he explained himself a bit more and I was really overcommitted at the time, but then I was talking to my person and I was like, this, we could maybe meet Thor. Like, maybe we might get some premiere tickets, and, oh, mm. <laughs> Thor is welcome in the bedroom, that's all I'm saying. And so, it was just a challenge, and it was so different, and black women are so underrepresented in comics, especially mainstream comics. And I did not know when I said yes that I was the first black woman to lead a Marvel comic, because it was 2016, so why would that be? But I was, I will not be the last. Uh, they've hired Gabrielle, uh, Gabri uh, she goes by Gabby, Gabby Rivera, who is going to be doing a comic, and also Saladin Ahmed, who's doing Black Bolt, and it's gonna be wonderful. World of Wakanda, they did bring to an end. Um, not, I don't get how it works over there, but, uh, what? Oh yeah, there's two more issues for sure, yes. The run is gonna complete, but um, I think we're going to revisit those characters just under a different title. Um, Ayo and Anika are gonna ride again. So it's fun. Has it been fun to like be immersed? I know like, if y'all don't know any blurds, they are the most amazing, like black nerds are so <laughs> hardcore and filled with love. And you know, I even I, I have like this secret Facebook group of like black nerds, right? Oh. And we just go there and we're like white people, like we can say that. Uh, you know, it's like a safe space to say uh -huh. that, but also like there's no like hoteps or anything like that. Uh -huh. so it's, oh, like, that's nice. good. Yeah, it's really hotep nice. Hotep free. Hotep exactly. Free. Hotep free zone. No tap. Um, <laughs> and so. Like, uh, we're no, we're not going to define hotep for y'all. <laughs> Google it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I, I had asked that for my book. I was like. Do I have to explain Hotep? No, you know what? People can just look Call that up. Google. But um, people were losing their minds. Like when first Tanahasi, people were like, ah! Yeah. And then like with you, like every black woman in group was like, what? Have you, have you gotten to see people face to face? Like yeah, see that community absolutely. and see that joy? Uh, I've done two comic book store signings, which has been amazing. And uh, people just bring the comic to these events. The weird thing is it's been really hard for people to find the comic. Stores have, as usual, underestimated a black woman and they have underordered the issues and they sell out very quickly and on the first day and they still haven't learned even though issue four is out. That was some deliberate shade right there. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it's thrilling to see people who are getting ho a hold of the issues and they come and they're so excited. And black women in particular, black queer women, have been so excited. And to be able to do this for people like me, um, it's one of the more gratifying things I have done in my writing career. And I will never forget what Ta-Nehisi made possible for me. It was just, you know, you gotta, ugh, this man. <laughs> he just does it. 
All right, we have one more question, mm -hmm. and then we are done. And, and this is this is a good one, um, which I feel like I'm setting up with like a really complex question or a simple one. Do you feel like people try to force you to prioritize gender over race or vice versa? Oh, do I? They try. <laughs> <laughs> they do try. A lot of times people expect me to prioritize gender. And the reality is that people see my race first, always. Always. And particularly, I'm 6'3", and I'm a fat woman. And I get read as male all the time. I get called, even with these. And I'm like, the girls are magnificent. What are you doing? Like, how do you not see them? Um, and so I get read as a threat. I have the, t the tattoos don't help. And so my race comes first every single time. And I hate that society forces me to prioritize, but here we are, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for your reading. Thank you for sitting and chatting with me. Thank of you course. for existing, for being on Twitter, <laughs> for following me back, which was the best like week of the year for me. Oh, <laughs> me I too. Love Yay. knowing that you exist. Thank you. In the world. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle, featuring readings by and a conversation with author Roxanne Gay. She spoke with Seattle writer Ijeoma Aluo at this Seattle Arts and Lectures Women You Need to Know event at Town Hall Seattle on February 22nd. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>